0: to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today though, I've got a very special guest and I would like to introduce you to Katie Marie McNeil, who has just defended her PhD in history under the supervision of Drs Karen Dubinsky and Jeff Bryson. Welcome to Grad Chat, Katie Marie. Hi, Colette. Thanks for having me. It must be so exciting. You've you've done it.
1: Yes. It's been about three weeks. Actually three weeks to the day.
0: Um, ah. that I have defended and it feels very lovely. I bet that's a big weight off your shoulder and you think of all those years that you put in to, to what you were doing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, hard to imagine how much of a uh, less
1: mental load I have. I did not expect that.
0: Um <laughs> <laughs> Just suddenly go, Whoop, yes gone. <laughs> but it's still in there. It's still in there. So it's actually interesting because I met Katie Marie many, many years ago when you first started with your master doing a masters in education. Yes. What was that topic on?
1: The Masters of Education, I was looking at the history of women's education inside the prison for women. Okay. So looking at incarcerated women's educational experiences in the mid 20th century.
0: And then you decided after that to go and do your next PhD in history?
1: Yes. So I, mean, I know
0: there's a lot of sort of similarities there, I guess.
1: Yes, yeah. I really enjoyed my time in the Faculty of Education, but for the PhD, I knew I wanted to do another historical study and I wanted to be around more historians. Well, right. the Faculty of Ed is great and they have a, a wide variety of research. There weren't many other historians and I really wanted some peers when I was working through the PhD to be able to consult with.
0: Consult with. Mm-hmm. And over those years, of course, I have got to know you through various writing camps that you've you've come to. And, you know, there's been quite a cohort that have gone through doing Masters and then the PhD. It must be quite wonderful. Well, I think it would be wonderful to get to meet people both within and outside your discipline along the way. Yeah, it's been nice.
1: I, I really looked forward to the writing camps, especially dissertation on the lake. I think I went to, yeah, I went yeah. twice, once in the Masters and once in the PhD, and yeah. it was so fun to get to meet all these other people. Um, across departments but also to see some familiar faces that I recognized Mm -hmm. from other SGSPA events um and nice to check in and see that we are still all in this together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I know last year's, or not this, not 2023, but 2022, there was at least two cabins' worth of historians at dissertation on the lake. You came on mass, <laughs> you lot.
1: <laughs> yes, I sold it to many of my, my cohort and said, it's great, you'll get so much writing done, and everyone signed up.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I know a few of you now who have defended, so clearly it, it helped, helped a little bit. Now, you're... PhD is also around the prison system. Yes. So before we get on to that topic, though, what's this fascination with the prison system?
1: Well, I started at Queen's actually in my Bachelor of Education. And as many of you may know, West Campus is directly across the street Mm -hmm. from the Prison for Women and Kingston Penn. So moving to Kingston and becoming immersed in this prison town, I found it very interesting to think that people in... West Campus and people in P4W coexisted but had such different realities throughout the mid 20th century. And I, I really wanted to learn more living here. And then once I started looking into prison history, there's such a fascinating microcosm for uh, social issues uh, at the what? time and, and seeing what different governments or state representatives think of rehabilitation and what justice looks like for communities. So that's really. I I came into prisons because of the proximity and stayed because they have such, such interesting, rich histories.
0: Right. And you're absolutely right. I remember when I first arrived in Kingston, there was, those two were still open. Of course, Mm -hmm. they're not now. And then there's the one I would call um, Disneyland. Collins Bay. Collins Bay. Yes. (laughs) And then there was a few others with the farms and, and all those sorts of things. And of course, they've been whittling down since then, which makes me wonder too. How, and it, this is just a, a statement. You know, how are those prisoners? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, how are they feeling getting moved around? Uh, particularly those who have been in, who potentially have been in there a long time, have got used to a certain system, and then getting moved out. So mm-hmm. it'd be yeah, there's, see there's how still that
1: goes. many active prisons in Kingston, Collins Bay. I, I live near that area right. and more towards the west end. And there's Joyceville, there's Millhaven, and then there's a bunch of minimum institutions, usually attached to the medium institutions as well, right. like Pittsburgh and right. So it's still quite a prison town, even though Kingston Pen and P for W have stopped stopped being
0: active sites. Yeah. Um, there's still quite a lot of activity here. So when you started because P for Women was still there, right, at the mm-hmm. time when you started. Were you able to go over and see, go to the prison itself, or was that a bit of, no, you know, no? Um,
1: the Prison for Women had been closed. Oh, it
0: had been closed. It had been okay. closed when
1: I first came here, and when I started living in Kingston, the walls had been knocked down as well, because right. for quite some time, okay. the exterior prison walls existed, yes. even though the prison had been decommissioned. The site itself is full of hazards now so you cannot right. access the building. There's peeling lead paint and asbestos um, and all these things oh, that come with older buildings. Yes, yes and buildings being closed and not having right. you know heat control and maintenance and those things so now it's quite hazardous to go in. Right. Um, but of course I've walked around the outside of yes. the building and tried to peek in the windows and <laughs> see what I could <laughs> see but um, but it is quite unsafe to go inside. All right
0: well Good to know. <laughs> Don't go in anyone. <laughs> That's great. So, you know what? Let, let's get on to your PhD. So, your PhD topic was Prisoner Aid Beyond Borders, a transnational history of prisoner aid societies in Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the United States from 1930 to 1970. So before we get into some of your questions about this, can you just give us a brief overview of what you were trying to do? So what
1: I was looking at was kind of a comparative analysis of different voluntary organizations that supported incarcerated people and their Mm -hmm. families in the mid-20th century. So within each of those four areas of study, I focused on a state or a province. So I looked at New York, Ontario, and Victoria in Australia. And then with New Zealand, uh, I kept it to the whole country just based on the the smaller size Mm -hmm. of the country. Um, It aligned with roughly the same population size um, as Ontario and Victoria, so it made sense in comparative ways. <laughs> Don't voice. tell the Kiwis that, no. No.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> And also they did not, the voluntary associations in New Zealand were more city-based, so it was easier to, to compare but... them across there. So what I was looking at was looking at policies and practices, so what did these small volunteer-led organisations do to help prisoners mm-hmm. and help prisoners' families, and what similarities were there, what differences were there, and... What interactions do societies have? So I was quite interested to find that, you know, from the 1940s onwards, that there's long correspondences between the volunteers in different cities around the world trying to oh, figure out right? how to best support prisoners and how to make policy change in each oh, of their respective amazing. locales. Yeah.
0: So why those four countries, apart from they're all English-speaking?
1: So they all share a tradition, of British common law, and they're also all settler colonies. At first, I... I set out to look at just Canada, Australia, and New Zealand as Mm English-speaking British common law settler states. But I I was advised by my supervisors, um, Karen Dubinsky and Jeff Bryson, to look at the U.S. as well, even though they had a slightly different history in respect to Britain's involvement, (laughs) because they're such a large power, and because they have such a long history of incarceration, and uh, have been kind of For better or worse leaders in in establishing prisons Mm -hmm. they thought that would be useful to compare them and then also on the practical side that uh, New York is quite close to Kingston whereas you know Melbourne and Auckland are a little bit farther away so they (laughs) wanted to ensure that I could have access to records more easily and to to start off wide with a wider scope and then I could always narrow it after Uh, but including the U.S. made sure that I had more local sources available.
0: Well, that's good. I mean, because some of this you've been doing during COVID, but you were able to go on field work. Yes, I was very, very
1: fortunate that I... um, You
0: got that done early.
1: I did, (laughs) yes. I I travelled to Australia and New Zealand in 2019, in early 2019, and uh, for no other reason other than I wanted to skip Canadian winter and enjoy summer over there. So it worked out really well. And
0: (laughs) good home-cooked meals from my mum.
1: Yes, (laughs) I was uh, very, very, very fortunate to stay with the steers and... Get some great hospitality and some lovely tea times, and we watched lots of British murder mystery shows in the evening oh, yeah. together. Mom it was great. Those,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you, so you went to New Zealand, and then in uh, Australia, but of course in Australia you were talking about the Melbourne, Victoria. Mum mm-hmm. and Dad live in Canberra. Why did you go to Canberra then? What was the purpose of going to Canberra? Because what you're, you're looking at it was in Victoria, a yes. state over. Yes, I did.
1: I did go to Melbourne as well and look okay. at their their state library and records there. Uh, but Canberra hosts the national yes. archives and the national library, so I wanted to go there to look at records between um, the federal government and state governments, uh, as they were always. All of these associations are always looking for funding and money, so they're right. applying to state government. And um, I found records there and correspondence uh, looking for funding for
0: oh, that's uh, really good.
1: Folks in Melbourne was and, it easy?
0: Because yeah. I know, remember the last time I went to the national library. Oh my goodness, the old system of. What do you want, and giving it to someone, and they have to go and get it because you can't get it yourself, and I'm sure it's still similar, is it?
1: It was, and when I was there, the National Archives were actually under construction, oh. so. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> <laughs> so they still had access, you could still access records, but you had to request in advance, and the reading right. room was much smaller. But the National Archives, Parliament, the Old Parliament, and National Library are all kind of in one little complex together. Right. So you just have to walk across some grounds, but they're all very close to one another. So it was right. easy to switch back and forth between the archives and the library if the archives didn't have what I was looking for, or they'd have it the next day, I could switch to the library. Right. And Australia I... has a fabulous online database. Their their system for their records is wonderful so I was able to access lots of digitized records or find hints towards physical copies in the library are you allowed to
0: take copies of them or just have to
1: make notes from you just have to make notes for most things um I I think especially because the archives were under construction note taking and and photography was the way to go I believe when they had full access, you could request things to be photocopied, but they right, would right. charge you for that. So
0: Yeah, we don't want that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that would come out of your funding. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then what about when you went to New Zealand? So you said you were in Auckland.
1: Yes, I was in Auckland, Wellington, Palmerston North yes. as well. I'm looking at some records there, but I was at public libraries, the National Archives, the National Library, and some smaller collections as well throughout there.
0: And then you went down to New York?
1: I did once again I was very fortunate with timing I went in January 2020
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes you were lucky yes
1: so I just wanted to go while holidays were still on and I wasn't yeah. teaching again yet so I yeah. went in
0: between it was, the it was university a good break one too wasn't it from what you because I know you had a bit of a holiday in Australia before coming back Yeah, so
1: it worked out well. So Mm -hmm. I just, was uh, my partner and I drove down to Albany, where the state archives are, and also went to SUNY Albany, the State University of New York, and their special collections library there. Hell held a great deal of the Prison Association of New York's records, which is what I was looking at.
0: Right, right. And then
1: I was quite fortunate again to have librarians and archivists from the New York Public Library digitize things and send them to me. I had wanted to travel there, but by the time, you know, the world had changed uh, in a couple months after that so the rest of my uh, research was digital.
0: You were so lucky that you got all that done before COVID hit.
1: Yes my friends joke that I must have known something but yeah. I but you didn't. i surely did
0: not. <laughs> <laughs> Just fortuitous. So what, what are the prisoner aid societies and why study them out of all the things? I mean your masters you looked at the education system for inmates. Why these aid societies. Why that?
1: So I found during the Masters that many of the educational programs were actually started by volunteers from uh, a local prisoner aid society, the Elizabeth Fry Society of Kingston, which is still active today. It is still
0: active, Mm -hmm. yes.
1: So I found that these volunteers were running art classes, music classes, math, reading, writing. They were doing all of these basic courses as well as some recreational things like volleyball and Ice skating. So I was curious to see if prisons and other places were also supported by volunteers in this way. And I think prisoner aid societies are quite interesting in that they are. Average citizens, whatever average means, but average citizens interacting with the justice system in a way that is not as um, a lawyer, not as a trained professional, nor as um, a defendant or as a victim. So it's it's a very interesting way Mm -hmm. that citizens can interact with the justice system in ways that we don't usually think about.
0: Do the prison systems actively seek these groups? Of people to help them, as opposed to going to the government saying, "Can have some funding to put on a put on something." Historically, these societies
1: formed themselves out of they saw a need and formed outside of government support, and then would try and get in. Uh, Usually, prisons were excited to have extra help and and for Hmm. programming, as long as it fell within their. Um, boundaries of what they thought was acceptable so you know if a warden that what they thought was acceptable yes so if a warden doesn't like what a group is doing you're not going to get access so they usually stuck to things like education job preparedness things like that so
0: and this is this is during a 40-year period right 1930 to 1970 I know things have changed probably changed a lot since then well maybe not um (laughs) but that period of time there was a lot of upheaval there was a lot of poverty in certain areas there was changes in the way governments were looking changes in in young countries right you look at australia and new zealand it's actually they're not really young countries they've been there for a very long time but young in terms of with european settlement and and the, the people there were going through their own transition of trying to decide, do we keep the old ways that we bought with us, or do we we merge with what the country is meant to be about? So did you find there was a lot of change from say 1930 to 1970, or was it pretty status quo? I think it, it ebbed and
1: flowed. I think a lot of the daily operations remain the same but the levels of support from the general public changed over time. So I think with prisoner aid, usually prisoners are marginalized in, in other ways. They're In terms of economic downturn, they're usually some of the poorest folks in a community. So right. during the Great Depression, which all four areas mm-hmm. were um, heavily affected in the early 1930s, most prisoners were general laborers. They didn't necessarily have... Um, trade skills or other skills so they were often the first let go when companies were downsizing so a lot of prisoner aid groups were doing just poverty reduction right so it was helping families have coal to heat their homes making sure families had food and often the families of the inmates of the prisoners yeah and many of the prisoners themselves were incarcerated for what I would say crimes of poverty like vagrancy which is kind of a catch-all term for anyone who's might be sleeping rough or unemployed or um, things like there was examples of women in New York who'd been arrested for stealing coats in the winter time so very much crimes of poverty so in those times in times of economic downturn those are the the mainstays of what services were provided. And unfortunately, those don't change throughout um, the 30s to the 70s. That There's always a lot of people in need, economic material need. And prisoner aid societies do a lot of basic material support.
0: So the prisoner aid societies, so this is one area I wasn't even thinking about. So you just talked about helping the inmates' families. But do they also help the inmates as well, like do things for the inmates themselves? Or is it all for their loved ones outside they do
1: both so they would run um support services within the prison so offering just kind of a kind ear to listen if someone had you know they just wanted to vent or talk about things they would offer connections and support they would help mail letters um you know run information between the inside and the outside for family members and then when prisoners were getting ready to leave they would help them find jobs they would give them proper clothing you know if someone's incarcerated in the summertime and then they're released in the wintertime they might need a whole different set of clothing right so they would do things like that Mm -hmm. Um, they would also keep prisoners belongings. so there's a great story from melbourne where a man is arrested while he's out with his horse and cart and he's so worried that his horse isn't going to be okay so the prisoner aid society in melbourne finds a pasture for the horse to stay while he's incarcerated and they keep his cart at their office headquarters so once he's released he doesn't lose his
0: horse and cart so they do things like
1: that and then for families it's once again a lot of basic material needs so food clothing boots especially for growing kids right um coal in places where it gets cold and then connecting families with other supports and services. So they would try and connect them with other charities or government services that would help provide.
0: Would it also be like giving them getting them access to transport to go and visit?
1: Yes. So in some places it's harder than other places Mm -hmm. depending on where someone's incarcerated but in in New York City bus tickets streetcar tickets and then sometimes um, train tickets for those who lived in New York State or were a little farther. Were incarcerated farther out into the state. Right, right. Um, they would get train tickets mm. for people who couldn't afford them. Um, so there was some, yeah, some support for visiting as well.
0: So why did you choose to do? I mean, you kind of mentioned this to do a comparative project instead of a deeper history of one of the prison aid societies. Because I mean. You could keep going and going and going, couldn't you? <laughs> yes, yeah. It was it was um, tempting to do like a deep social history of
1: just one of these organizations mm-hmm. because they have such long histories of supporting um, people who aren't usually the most well liked in society. Well, like the Elizabeth <laughs> Fry Society, exactly. Here. As you said, it's been going for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I was really curious to look at trends across kind of an English settler state um, community, and I I wanted to see how they collaborated and how they co-created an idea of justice and what justice looked like. So in this case, I think comparing these four different areas helped show what English-speaking... British settler colonies thought justice was. So justice in- involved incarceration and involved um, a person or a prisoner kind of atoning for their crime and then being welcomed back into society, but only if they played by, by the, the rules. Books. Yes. So
0: was there any other sort of trends that you saw across the, across the way? I mean, from a, a warmer climate to a colder climate. I mean, I don't know if that would make any difference at all, but did you see anything different? Uh, The main differences
1: were related to employment. So in Australia, a lot of prisoners were men and a lot of them were men who worked in agricultural industries. So and they were usually kind of farmhands or general laborers who would travel around the countryside looking for people who needed an extra hand and right. they often slept outside in these things called swags yes. which were one person tents um yeah. so the prisoner aid societies bought a lot of swags and gave those away to men to
0: try and help them right. um, find employment again oh well, that's good and what about in New Zealand what did you see there
1: because in- there's
0: always a lot of comparisons between Australia and New Zealand like there is you know Canada US
1: yes and that's part of the reason why I picked all four of these as well is mm-hmm. kind of a a larger partner like with the US and a smaller partner with Canada and then the same a larger partner with Australia and a smaller partner with uh, New Zealand so in New Zealand um, a lot of the same things a lot of general laborers needing support Um, there wasn't as much concern for uh, coal or heating equipment like there was in Mm -hmm. Ontario and New York for families but many of the same same things between Australia and New Zealand.
0: Did it make a difference did some of the supports make a difference depending on the the race of the inmate? This was one interesting area. Because we know in all of them, there's a larger proportion yes. of colored people in the prison systems.
1: Yes. And I found um, I, I did from the outset want to look to see if prisoner aid societies supported mm-hmm. specifically indigenous or aboriginal prisoners yes. in a different way. And I found that each place does have a disproportionate incarceration okay. rate of indigenous folks, but that that doesn't really start to show up until the late 60s and, and 70s. so towards the end of the period okay. so prisoner aid societies were kind of slow to adapt to the changing needs of, of different prisoners right and base of New Zealand uh, they didn't really treat Maori prisoners differently even though the government noticed that there was a an increase in especially young Maori boys entering the criminal justice system. Um, They didn't make changes really until the 1980s, and that was only spurred on by Maori groups and organizations saying, hey, look, you need to... What you've done in the past is great, but that doesn't work. You can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you need to provide supports that have cultural context and understand cultural difference uh, as you're doing that.
0: So in that were some of those cultural, some of those aid societies from certain cultures to to assist in that area? Because I know when I lived in New Zealand, and I think I've said this story before, when I you know, was working with the, the basketball, expecting these kids to be really excited to come to a national training camp, and then they suddenly didn't turn up. And I go, well, why not? And they go, well, they probably had to look after their family. And I didn't quite get it. And so I had to do some cultural training on that. And then... Knowing that this kid has such great potential, we actually got one of the the, the, Ma- the other Maori um, players, senior players, to go and talk to the family, and then was okay. And the next time, so there was ways to do it right, which at the time I didn't know. But it would make more sense if the Ma- if there was a, for instance, in New Zealand, there was a Maori aid society who understands how it works within their family in within their iwi. Go and talk and and help Mm -hmm. both at home and in in the prison. Yes, and I would say that the
1: societies were kind of late coming to the game on that. So most societies throughout the 1930s to the 1970s treated their default prisoner as a a white young man for the most part, even though there was a variety of prisoners and experiences and uh, identities and that I think that was because a lot of the volunteers themselves were white European background largely you know lots of British Mm -hmm. ancestry and things like that across volunteers so they were providing services that they thought would be helpful to them if they were in those shoes but they did not consider other cultural expectations. Those services are now culturally uh, relevant and they're offered in Each place has maybe not volunteer societies that are specific to Indigenous folks, but that each society, for example, like the Elizabeth Fry Society of Kingston, is much more culturally aware and provides a lot of Indigenous-specific support for Indigenous women um, through the organization and organizations around each of those four places do the same.
0: Well, that's that's really good. I'm I'm really pleased to hear that because that was going to be one of my last questions, was do Prisoner Aid Societies still operate and how have they changed (laughs) (laughs) from the mid-20th century? I'm glad to see we've progressed a little bit. Do you think they could be doing more? Or during that period, I guess we should talk about that period of time, do you think they could have done more during that time to help? Or was it really dependent on what the warden of the prison wanted at the time? I think... I think they worked with what they had. Um, a lot of these societies
1: were not well-funded. They right. usually formed at first with private donations, right. and then following the Second World War, there's a shift towards um, expectations from citizens that the state will provide some level of social services. We see right. kind of, in each four of these places, we see um, kind of a proliferation of social services, provided by the state, whether that's at a federal or national level or at the local level. So there's an expectation that tax dollars support these types of initiatives and we see a decrease in private funding or private philanthropy and donations to these societies at that time. So they become more dependent on state funding and they have less access to funds to use at their discretion because usually state funding comes with ties, right? It comes with expectations. Whereas private philanthropy sometimes came with guidelines or expectations. Like, you know, I'm, for example, if someone donated, you know, $100 and they wanted that to go to the food fund or something like that, that would have to be respected. But um, there were less limitations with private donations and those start to dry up. So I think... I think societies themselves wanted to do more in the mid-20th century, but they were limited by a lack of full-time staff, as these are mostly volunteer-based. There's usually only one or two staff members who are Mm full-time, and a lack of funding.
0: Did you get any details on what the prisoners themselves thought of these aid societies? How how did that, in in any of the four areas? Mm -hmm. So...
1: What I have uh, in terms of records are largely letters of correspondence between prisoners and the societies themselves or letters from families writing back to prisoner aid societies. Mm -hmm. Of course, though, there's a selection bias, right? So societies are saving in their organizational archives letters that are thanking them or they're publishing, you know. The good things. Exactly. They're publishing letters saying thank you so much for your support this made us this helped us our family get through the winter right easily and they're publishing that in their annual report to show their supporters the great work they've done so I only found a handful of complaints right. um but once again I think that is just um it could be reflective selective. of a selector of who yeah. selected what to stay in the archives right. and and what maybe has been recycled over the years
0: <laughs> and out of the four areas that you looked at was one doing a better job of the society aid societies than another, or was it all pretty even? Um, I a mean, hard, dif- hard thing to say because yes. different populations
1: as well. I would say New York was leading. Uh, there were two main mm-hmm. societies in New York: the Prison Association of New York, which supported men, and the Women's Prison Association of New York, which supported women. They were originally formed as one organization, but the women's right. branch split off um, about ten years later in the mid-19th century because they found that women weren't getting enough specific support. So they split um, into their own organization. So these two societies were amongst the largest and the most well-funded. So I think societies in Ontario, Victoria, and New Zealand really look to New York-based societies for ideas and innovations. They're both some of the first societies to open kind of transitional homes or halfway houses to help people get on their feet as soon as they were released Um, and especially the Women's Prison Association of New York. They were um, quite progressive for their time in terms of supporting women from all areas of life. They're working a lot with sex workers. They're working with women who have children out of wedlock which was um, a little more controversial in the 1930s than it is. It's not really a concern these days but Mm -hmm. it was a concern in the past. Um, Women with children from Different relationships, and and they were accepting of different types of families, right? Um, which other, especially other charities at the time, especially other religious based charities, were not willing to support. So right. the Women's Prison Association of New York supported all sorts of people who might not qualify for aid from other from other charities. Areas.
0: Last question for you: mm-hmm. You've gone through these four. Totally get it. The prison system was loosely based on the British system why didn't you look to see what how it compares to what was going on in Britain because that would be the natural thing of you know because particularly in that period of time there was very close ties to the UK yes Um, so you would think they would be looking very closely at what they were doing I was really
1: interested in looking at settler colonial states right so that's why I stayed with the four places that I chose and, Mm -hmm. and didn't look to Britain specifically, I looked to Britain for uh, philosophical and ideological um, understandings right. that those were definitely shared across. I mean, many of the societies are named after famous British reformers like John Howard and Elizabeth Fry. Okay. So um, right. they yes. are there is a, a continuing history. But I was really curious to see how these settler colonial governments set up a new idea of justice and right. a new idea a new idea of or if it was even a new idea of justice in in their respective states. So that's why I was curious, and I was hoping to find more um, about the treatment of Indigenous people in each four locations, but I found that individual records about prisoners were extremely difficult to access, which I suspected uh, initially, which is kind of why I chose prisoner aid societies as another way to study prisons that have less restrictions on records. But in terms of finding prisoner... Biographical data—it was really difficult to find. Like, for example, I only found one reference to an Indigenous man in all of my Australian records. Is that right? One. And one. And I know that there were other yes. Indigenous and Aboriginal prisoners there, but I only found one reference in a minute book that just said, you know, the guy's name, that he was Indigenous, and should we help? Question mark. And that was it. So, I found the records. There was a lot of silence there, which You're I think right. is interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to, in future work, look more at race and indigeneity, but I think I would I need think, to get into yeah, individual not, prisoner records. I, th-
0: I think it would be interesting because it's changed a lot since. Mm-hmm. I Well, I'd hope it's changed a lot from everyone being more aware of different cultures in each of the countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully it will change. So what's next for you? So I am currently in a new full-time position. Yes, you are. <laughs>
1: so I'm I'm currently the interim coordinator of postdoctoral affairs in the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral yeah. Affairs. So which is great. we are officially colleagues, which is we lovely. We
0: are colleagues, <laughs> yeah, not just mates anymore, yeah. colleagues.
1: <laughs> so that that's a contract that will go until the end of next summer and then from there kind of who knows. Hopefully I've I've applied for some postdocs and mm-hmm. other research-based things, but administration or
0: research who knows hopefully a bit of both well I'm going to have to get you to come back I think because I know during your time as a grad student you got involved in a lot of different things to to help you both academically but also professionally so will you come back I'd love to excellent because we've run out of time (laughs) (laughs) oh Um, that would be great so uh, you know Katie Marie great chatting with you thank you so much i know it was last minute so i really appreciate you coming on and let's chat again to to find out a bit more about what you've been doing but uh, yeah thank you for coming on the show no thank you for having me you're welcome so that's it everyone another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google Podcasts, spotify or cfrc podcast just type in grad chat Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.